Turn with me to Acts chapter 28, starting at verse 11, and going through the end of that chapter and the end of the book. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for His help with our text today. Lord Jesus, as we come to Your Word, again, like we do every week, we pray that You help us with it because we are so quick to uh, even claim that we don't need help. Maybe we think we've somehow mastered Your Word or we know what we need to know already or it's the same thing over and over again or whatever those things that we might say that pretend to make You um, easy to understand, that pretend to make You too simple for us. Lord, you are infinitely more than we can ever understand without your help. And that's why we need your help this morning as we open your word. Convict us of our sin. Lead us to your truth. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So I remember as a kid going on trips. And when you're a kid, you... Anytime you go on a trip that's over 30 minutes, it seems like some sort of arduous pilgrimage that is going to test your strength and courage for all time. And that's just not the case. But one of the exciting things about going on trips was the planning, at least for me. I tend to be a planner. Um, and But I was always excited about what we're going to do when we get there. And so that was part of the fun. One trip to the beach that we went to as a family, our first time to ever go to the beach. My siblings and I would plan on the way, and we would talk about like, okay, when we first get there, we're going to go down to the beach, and then we're going to come up and swim in the pool, and then we're going to play in the sand, and we had all this kind of like structure to it, and then that was our first couple of hours, and then we didn't know what we were going to do after that, and that was just the way I thought about things, that my brother and sister really didn't think about things like that, even when we were going to the grandparents' house or to the mall or something like that. Well, we're going to do this and then this. And I always had some sort of plan or structure. We all do this to some extent or another, and it doesn't really even have to be a trip. It can be really anything that we're waiting for. I even think about our new church building and the thoughts and the dreams that we have for that. When we get this new building, we're going to have this kind of ministry or this kind of meeting or we're going to do this and we're going to do that and it's it's real easy to do that and all of that is really great planning is good there's nothing wrong with dreaming and a lot of ministries call this sort of thing vision casting i guess to kind of make it sound spiritual or something but you get the idea it's just dreaming it's planning paul is coming to an end in his journey in rome And you know that in his mind, he has a plan. This is what I want to do when I get to Rome. You know he does. My guess is that he wasn't thinking, okay, first I want to see all the nice landmarks and the statues and the different things that were there then that aren't even there now. He probably wasn't even thinking, first I have to get this whole appeal to Caesar thing out of the way and then I'll be able to do whatever it is I want. I'm sure at the forefront of his planning was the work of the Great Commission. Seeing the name of Christ go forward, bringing the lost sheep of God, establishing the churches there, fulfilling His calling. As we look at this last passage of Acts, we're going to see exactly what Paul did in those first days in Rome. 
when he got there and how he worked the rest of his time there. I think it would be helpful for us as our continued ministry, I mean, as we continue on in our ministry and as we plan the next steps in our, as our journey as a church. So we'll look at three points in this passage, our courage, our courage from the church, division with the Jews, and then boldness in the continued work. And so with that, let's look together at God's Word, Acts 28, starting at verse 11 and reading through verse 31. Please stand together as we read from God's Word. Acts 28, starting at verse 11. After three months, we set sail in in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day a south wind sprang up, and on the second day we put at Putioli. There we found the brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and so we came to Rome. And the and the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and the Three Taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against the people or our customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against." When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him and his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated.
So finally, Paul arrives at Rome, and it does so without a whole lot of fanfare. Uh, I find it interesting that even Luke, there in verse 14 of this passage, just says, and so we came to Rome, as if it's kind of a footnote of what's been going on. Paul made a port, or they made port at a place called Puteoli, which was near the city of Pompeii uh, in the shadow of Mount Vesuvius, and was probably, um, this is probably one of the most important ports for the city of Rome itself at the time. Today, the city of Naples kind of envelops that whole area as this large metropolitan center, but in that time it was still a very major port for the country of Italy. We don't read about Paul's defense to Caesar. You can see that in other parts of the New Testament, or at least the mention of it. But instead, he defends himself to the Jews that are there in Rome. Remember, back in Acts 18, we read about some Jews that had been kicked out of Rome. Remember Priscilla and Aquila, Paul met there in Philippi, and they had been kicked out of Rome under the rule of Claudius. Well, apparently... Them and now even the Christians are seeming are black and seemingly no worse for the wear. They were in the synagogue. They had built up this strong Jewish uh, community there in in Rome. The Christians were there and they were able to move about more. Or they were able to move about freely, at least for a few more years. And so there was a pretty strong Christian and Jewish community there in Rome. And we'll see that no matter who he's talking to. He, Paul is constantly making much of Jesus and continues on his mission, mission until the very end. And just a, a word on that, we don't get the end of his life here in this book. We read that he was in prison. Well, Paul was probably released from prison at this uh, later, a couple of years later, went back and did more missionary work, was imprisoned again and came to Rome where he was finally Executed. A lot of that we know from the early church fathers, but probably 25 different church fathers speak about the same thing, so it's probably fairly reliable. And so that brings us to the first point, courage from the church. Look with me at the second part of verse 14 and verse 15. <clears throat> and so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the form of Apius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. <coughs> when they heard about us, they came as far as the form of Apius and three taverns. It's a pretty cool name for a town. They were about 30 and 40 miles away from Rome, respectively. Paul, the apostle, was coming to Rome, and they all knew it. This was a really big deal. Why else would they travel to come there? No, no other reason. They had to come see Paul. They had probably read his letter to the Romans by now, which Paul wrote while he was in the churches in Greece, and they were encouraged by it. And now he, Paul, is going to be coming in the flesh to visit. And of course, they're going to travel to see him. And on seeing them, it says that Paul thanked God and took courage. 
Is it because that he was going to have some folks that would stand with him while he was in Rome? That's not what happened. Because when he finally did go to trial in Rome, no one stood with him. We read that in 2 Timothy. No one stood with him at his trial. Put yourself in Paul's shoes for a moment, though. You've, you've spun off this whole movement throughout your work and ministry, planting churches all, all over the place, seeing the Lord work through all and much of the known world. And these folks who you've never met now are coming to meet you. And they've traveled several days. Forty miles was not an easy trip, even on the Roman roads, which would have been all over the place. It took several days to do that. How do you respond in that situation? Of course, you thank God and you take courage. I think we can all understand this to one degree or another. You sometimes, you do something for someone. They go out of their way to thank you, to tell you what a difference that thing made to them. Whatever it is that you did, how does that make you feel? Well, you have this surge of confidence, right? And you feel like you could do anything. And you feel particularly empowered to do that thing that you did again. So that you can make other people feel good. You feel encouraged to continue to do the work that you're doing. Not only glad for the work you did, but also now wanting to do it for someone else. To help anyone else. Think about my work as a teacher. When a kid comes back to me and says... My ACT score went up four points. Thanks for your help. Thinking, well, awesome. That's great. I always wonder if it's going to help at all. But apparently it does. I'm glad it was helpful. Now I want to do that again. So I can have similar stories like that again happen. It's a good thing. Well, think about that as I work in the church. Unfortunately, we don't always see the fruit of our work so quickly. It would be nice if there were things like ACT tests in the church, but there aren't. Probably be bad if there were, actually. Sure, giving someone food or clothing, these things have immediate rewards. You can watch them eat, or you can see them have new clothing that they didn't have before. It's a, it's a good thing. But when it comes to teaching things about God, teaching the truth about Scripture, sharing the gospel with others, instilling in them what it means to live morally right and ethically right according to the scriptures, showing them how we should be like followers of Christ. These things don't always give immediate rewards, and in fact, they can often have many bumps along the road. So how do we handle this as believers? It's easy to get discouraged the opposite of what Paul's doing here. He's taking courage. It's easy for us to get discouraged. But we have to take even the smallest bit of fruit that we see and understand that the Lord is ultimately doing a great work. I think of that in my own life. I think of that in the work of the life of my kids. And as I see believers all over. With the Roman church, it grew... Because of God's faithfulness to use folks like Paul and Luke and others that were there. Paul was able to take courage and thank the Lord just by seeing the saints come to him. That was a good thing. With our families, with our church, with our own personal ministries. Whatever fruit we see, 
we should be thankful for, even if it's not the big thing that we had wished for. Whatever small thing the Lord gives us, we should be thankful for. In fact, these small gifts should spur us on to continue the work that we have started. In Calvin's commentary, John Calvin, in his commentary on Acts, he says this, For so often, as God shows to his servants any fruit of their labor, he does, as it were, prick them forward with a goad, that they may proceed more courageously in their work. But that was very good for the day. Let us continue in our work that we've been called to and encouraged every time that we see the faithfulness of God in it. That brings me to the next point, the division with the Jews. Look with me at verses 17 through 20. I'll just summarize because this is something that we've read from Paul. This is now Paul's sixth defense that he has given to the charges that he was uh, charged with in Jerusalem. He gathers the Jewish leaders together and basically tells them, I've done nothing that they've charged me with, but I wanted to talk to you before I talked to anyone else. In verse 20, he says, For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. It is because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. So he immediately begins making his defense before the Jews. Maybe he thought that there had been correspondence between Judea and Rome. And he thought when he got to Rome, the Jews there were automatically going to be looking to start another riot and pull him in the streets and beat him again. So maybe he was hoping to kind of stave some of that off. But apparently there was no correspondence between the Jews in Judea and the Jews in Rome. It's the first time for Paul. There has been all this other time. Nonetheless, he kind of gives a shortened version of the ordeal and why he's there. And notice how he characterizes, again, this whole thing. How does he characterize it? It is because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. It is because of our hope. He's talking to his Jewish brothers there. It's because of our hope that I'm wearing this chain. And we know, as believers, who he is referring to when he says the hope of of Israel. The Jews were hoping for a Messiah. Paul now knows who that Messiah is and proclaims him to them. Verse 21 and 22. And they and again, they said to him, we've received no letters from Judea about you. None of the brothers coming here has reported any evil, but we desire to hear from you. What your views are? With regard to this sect, we know that is everywhere, that everywhere it is spoken against. So the Jews in Rome even know this, or they know about this whole Christian thing. They see the Christians in Rome, but they had no ill will toward him. They just wanted to know what is this group of Christians and why do they look similar to us, but much different than us at the same time? I think that. We need to remember the relationship between the Jews and the Christians. Christians are basically doing Judaism realized. If you want to look at it in that way, all the Old Testament is still applicable for the Christian, but is complete in Christ Jesus. And so we think about the things that made the Jewish people Jews, the cleanliness laws, 
the food laws, the temple sacrifices, all of these things that the Jewish people were still doing because they were still looking for a Messiah to come and make those things perfect, the Christians were no longer doing because those things are complete and fulfilled in Christ. And so what were the Jews doing? They were holding on to a false hope. They were hanging on to false promises. But in Christ, the Christians were worshiping the God of the Jewish scriptures come to earth. The Emmanuel, God with us. This was an offense to the Jew because they were still waiting. They didn't recognize this Jesus who claimed to be that and they crucified him for it. So what does Paul do? He does what he does every time. He preaches Christ to them. Verses 23 and 24. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him and his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, and others disbelieved. Paul opens up the scriptures to them. He shows them from Moses. He shows them from the prophets that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah that is to come. He is the fulfillment of all the types and shadows in the Old Testament. We could go on and on. In Genesis, he was the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. He was the fulfillment of the sacrificial laws in Exodus, the cleanliness laws in Leviticus. He was the bronze serpent that was held high in Numbers 21. He was the coming prophet in Deuteronomy 18. We could go through every single book of the Old Testament and we could say, this is who Jesus was. This is who they were looking forward to. And he did that just then for them. He probably walked them through the book of Isaiah as well because he quotes from it. A book that is teeming with references to the coming Messiah. The Jews knew that. And Paul was just showing them that this coming Messiah is now fulfilled in the person and the work of Christ Jesus. And notice the response. Verse 24. And some were convinced and some disbelieved. This is a common response, is it not? How many times we've read this in the book of Acts? much less in other places throughout the Gospels. Some believed, some did not. It's a common response then. It's a common response now. If you preach the Gospel to a room full of folks, some will be convinced, others will continue in their disbelief. Why is that? Paul answers that question. He continues on, verse 25, and disagreement... And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul made one statement. Paul kind of cleared the room. He said, the Holy Spirit is the right in saying to you and saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet. And then he quotes Isaiah chapter 6 in verses 26 and 27 here. He quotes the second half of Isaiah chapter 6, which we'll be looking at in a few weeks. He says, Go to this people. This is God's commandment to the prophet Isaiah. To go to the people of Israel. 
Go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Paul says, this is why you don't understand. Because your ears are closed. Your eyes are closed. Your heart can't understand. This should take us back to Isaiah, for instance. If we read through the book of Isaiah, which we will be doing over the next couple years, how did Isaiah teach? Lots of word pictures. Lots of imagery to help us understand the point that he was getting across. Did Israel then believe because it was made easier for them? No. What about Jesus when he come? When he came, how did he teach? Through parables. He told stories that had a meaning to them. And did the people hear? He even said after the parables, what did Jesus always say or almost always say after he finished a parable? He who has ears, let him hear. Did everyone hear? No. When Paul is here quoting Isaiah, many will hear and will never understand. What is the only way that they will understand? How can their eyes be opened? How can their ears be opened? Who has to do that work? The Lord himself does that work. This is one of the toughest things about gospel ministry. As you look in the gospels and you see the ministry of Jesus and the apostles there, as you read the book of Acts, as we've done and we've seen the ministry of the apostles in the book of Acts, and they've preached the gospel faithfully, as you read through the epistles, even as you look through the ministry of the prophets in the Old Testament, the plain teaching of Scripture, the plain teaching of the gospel of Christ is there. But the people do not believe over and over and this is where it's easiest to lose heart and to give up and by giving up i don't mean throwing in the towel and go doing something else that's that's not what happens typically now some people do that sure but most of the time giving up looks a lot different than that by giving up i mean changing the message so that they will understand so that they will hear so that they will see because our inclination is they obviously don't understand what I'm preaching so let me tell them something that they will understand what do they understand they want to hear about themselves they don't believe in Jesus we don't believe Jesus when he says what did he say about who will believe he said few will believe we don't believe him when he says that the the way is narrow that leads to salvation and few will enter. We don't believe the scriptures when they over and over talk about the condition of the heart that is wicked and it will never seek after God and it is only evil ever continually, all the time, bad, never good, never seeks after God, no one does good, no, not one. We don't believe that. Instead, we see the man's heart as always seeking. And since he's always seeking, we will make it easier to him to find God. So we preach a false gospel 
about a deflated God and an inflated man. What is the true gospel? That man is completely deflated. That man is only ever evil continually. That man will never seek after God. God is holy. Man is garbage and deserving of God's eternal wrath. That is the truth. And how must man hear about this salvation of God? Through the way that God says that he will hear. Through the preaching of the gospel. Through the very words of God preached and taught. And it doesn't have to be from a pulpit. It can be shared over coffee or over lunch. It can be over the phone or over a holiday conversation. Or it can be one-on-one. Or it can be one-on-a-hundred. It is the plain preaching and teaching of the Word of God that will bring about repentance and belief. Will some not be convinced like we have here in Acts 28? Absolutely. That's what the Word of God says, right? The way is narrow. Few will enter. Turn with me to Luke chapter 16. And we'll see a picture of our Lord dealing with this very same idea as he is teaching a parable. Luke chapter 16, starting at verse 27. I'll just catch you up. This is the, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Remember, Lazarus was on the, out next to the, the rich man's house and he was starving. And he dies and he goes up to heaven and the rich man dies and he goes down to hell. And the rich man is suffering in hell and he's, he's begging for just a tip, for someone to dip the tip of their finger in water to quench his thirst. And he's speaking with Abraham of all people who saw Christ's day and was glad. And this is where that conversation goes. Verse 27. This is the rich man. He says, then I beg you, father, To send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers. So that he may warn them. Lest they also come to this place of torment. Please, if you're not going to save me, at least send someone to my house and warn my family. That they would never come here. Verse 29, but Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no. Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they then will repent. See, Moses and and the prophets aren't enough. They need to actually see it with their eyes, hear it with their ears. They need to see this thing happen. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Which, If you just keep going, that's exactly what happens. And here we are at the end of the book of Acts, and we still have many, many people who do not believe. That's how that works. They have Moses and the prophets. This is just what Paul preached to them that day there in Rome. Paul tried to convince them about Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets. And he goes on. Even if someone should rise from the dead, they wouldn't believe. 
Again, that's exactly what happened. Jesus was risen. He hung on a Roman cross. He was laid in a tomb, but He's not there anymore. They couldn't go find Jesus. They couldn't find Him in their day. They can't find Him today. Because He's at the right hand of the Father. And they still don't believe. Will some not be convinced by the plain teaching of Scripture? Absolutely. That's always going to be the case. Do we then change our message so that they will be convinced? No. Because they wouldn't be convinced if Jesus himself came and preached it. We must not, we will not change our message. We will preach the same message that Jesus preached, that John the Baptist preached, that Peter and Paul preached. Repent and believe. The kingdom of God is at hand. And that leads me to the next point. Boldness in the continued work. Look with me at 28 through 31. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Paul continued to preach to the Gentiles while he was there in Rome. It's not like he completely threw the Jews under the bus or anything. He preached to them also, anyone who would hear, but his ministry was primarily to the Gentiles. He was under house arrest at this time. He was allowed to live on his own, but he was kept under the eye of the guard at all times. He welcomed people into his home. He preached the gospel. He did so with boldness and without hindrance until his death. Even as a prisoner, he welcomed people in from his home slash prison. He saw the church in Rome grow and prosper. For us, we are not prisoners. Sometimes it does feel like that. We might feel trapped by the world, particularly as we look at the immoral immorality and the evil that is all around us. People do not fear the Lord. They act as if they are their own God. They act as if they are somehow in control of their own destinies. Yet we know that that isn't true at all. In fact, we know what they are headed for. So how will we warn them? We'll continue on our same path. We'll be just like Paul. We'll preach the gospel. Or we'll hide in our homes and just wait for Jesus to come. Which one will we do? We'll be examples to all that we meet in word and deed. Will we love others and in so doing show them the love of Jesus Christ? Not all of you are the type to open up and just start a gospel conversation. I understand that. But I know that all of you are willing to have people into your homes. Do it. Invite your friends. Talk to them about your faith. Talk to them about our new church building. Talk to them about what's going on. They'll ask questions. They always do. And when they do, be ready with the truth of Scripture. So in conclusion, as we draw to a close with the book of Acts, one thing is clear, though it may be called the Acts of the Apostles, they were only ordinary men and women obeying the call of their Creator, the Savior, Jesus Christ. 
this book could easily be called the Acts of Jesus Christ instead because he was always at work, whether it was at Pentecost on the first days there or throwing Paul off his horse and starting him on his own journey or making sure that Paul's ship made it to Rome or anything else along the way. He was there every step because he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. As we embark on our own journey, as we look forward into moving into a new facility, into a new neighborhood, let us look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, to be the one who will grow his church. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to you, we come to you recognizing that you are the one who is doing the work. You are the one who will open the hearts of men and women who are lost, who are seeking after their own way, who are going slowly to their eternal death. And so, Lord, help us to be a people who are bold, who take courage, who do ministry without hindrance. And we pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.